Have you ever walked past the dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster Podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. And we're coming at you with episode 33, and we're doing something a little different this episode. We actually have two mini stories that we're going to be telling. One, I kind of added at the last minute because it's a very timely story about Elijah McLean. And the other story is of Natasha Ryan, which we'll go into later and is not super of this time period at all. It's just something that I've been sort of fascinated with for a couple of months and I've really wanted to tell the story. So I wanted to do that this week. Crikey, mate. Yes, it is an Australian story. It's from Down Under. Ever since I read about it a couple months ago, I just think about it constantly. So that's why I wanted to make sure to do it before too long and somebody else snatches it from me. Lots of snatchers. competition and snatches. Which snatchers, speak, sorry. Speak, speaking of, <laughs> I'm really, I mean, I get it when podcasts do some of the same stories, it can kind of get tiring. But I would say in the cases of Kanika Jenkins, Kendrick Johnson, and... Mytrice Richardson, three cases that have been covered by podcasts a lot lately. I think that's awesome because it just puts public pressure and more coverage of these people's stories who all had very mysterious deaths and really need to be looked into more. Absolutely. Sa- same with the Tamla Horsford thing. So that's who we did last week. And this is coming out a little bit later this week, but... Um, We did Tamla Horsford last week and Crime Junkies, which is one of the largest podcasts in the nation. They're problematic. I, I, I will admit, I I listen to them. They, they steal people's shit straight Uh. up. Yeah. Without giving credit. Just because it's on the internet doesn't mean that you can take it and steal it. That's called plagiarism. Yeah. Just ask Metallica. You don't have to. You don't have to be an English teacher to know that or a student. You just have to know that that's not right. Or if you are going to source material from the Internet, why don't you give that person some fucking credit? So I listened to a podcast recently with a couple of hosts from various podcasts who have been ripped off by Crime Junkies. And whenever Crime Junkies basically has been confronted with doing that, they just delete their episodes. So, for instance, <laughs> the episode I know that they ripped off from the chick, I think her name is Esther. I don't listen to her podcast a lot, but she is from Once Upon a Crime and um, Let's Taco About Crime. They stole her story, The Women of Juarez. And like, so in that example, it's like, yeah, that's that's like the missing women of Juarez is like a really, really important story that needs to be told, but stealing it, especially white women or a white woman, Ashley Flowers, 
stealing it from a woman of color like Esther, who is Mexican-American, that's just extra fucked up, you know? So anyways, my point with Crime Junkies this week is that they did Tamla Horsford, which, yay, getting more exposure, but eh, Crime Junkies, very listenable, but also problematic. Do they rip us off? I don't know. I was trying to listen to it. I'm like, oh, did they rip us off at all? But no, they're not ripping us off, unfortunately. I guess we're not on their radar. Yeah. Well, and they, after listening to their episode, I mean, they have full-time researchers and people who, like, work for them. They have their own production company called Audio Chuck. So, I mean, they they actually, the the podcast is their full-time job. They get, they have sponsors up the wazoo. They're getting all kinds of free toothbrushes and mattresses and hair dye. So they live in their parents' basement is what you're telling me. (laughs) No, they're actually very well off. And they employ both of their husbands and stuff. And Ashley Flower's brother does like the sound engineering and stuff. So they're they're very well off and they both own their homes and stuff. So, you know, they're not hurting. So they're definitely not getting stuff from us. But they did actually get some information, which I cross-referenced to make sure it was real. (laughs) But a couple of things. So the lady whose house it was, you know, I kept calling her Jean. Her name is Jean. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Like the French version of John. Tomato, tomato. I I was just surprised by that. So I had called her Jean throughout the entire episode. Her name is Jean. Sorry, Jean. Also, another detail I didn't mention is that there's about five minutes of the 911 call that's redacted. We didn't talk a ton about the 911 call, but that's sketch, right? Do you know what redacted means? Yeah. Okay. Who don't? Well, if you don't know what redacted means, it means taken out. And usually it's taken out for security reasons or, you know, other. But 911 calls are fairly open to the public once a case has been closed. The only reason to redact it is if maybe it implicates somebody in it. And I, you know, I don't know why else it would be redacted other than maybe for the privacy of Tamla's family because it's maybe insinuated in the redacted part of the call that she may have been suicidal or something because it was right around the time he was mentioning the self, the potentially self-inflicted wounds to her wrists. So when the part that's not redacted said something about she was like asking him, uh, Jose, if she was suicidal. And, and so again, the part that was redacted sketch, but also it could be to protect like Tamla Horsford's family to some extent, you know, not having to hear that part. But reminds me of the 19 pages redacted from the 9-11 report that came out. Why does that remind you of it? Just the, the fact that it was redacted and sketchy? Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Sketchy. Okay. Yeah. And redacted. Got it. That would be a good podcast name, Sketchy and Redacted. That would be hard to do because <laughs> the whole whole podcast is just redacted. That's my sketch comedy show. Yeah. You just don't say anything. <laughs> yeah. It's in the shower. <laughs> also, I didn't mention Tamla's friend, Michelle Graves. She was the one who really pushed the notion that this was not just an accident, that this was potentially a murder. And she very much pointed the finger at Jean and Jose to the point where they actually sued her. They actually took her to court for slander and she had her personal information compromised numerous times in really sketchy ways and never really explained the, so those were like the big things that they kind of addressed in the podcast that I wanted to just kind of talk about for a moment just to kind of bring it di- home yeah well to digest it one last thing that kind of stuck out to me was 
so the Horsford family had a lawyer named Ralph E. Fernandez who in a letter, so a lot of the information I got from last week's episode was in the letter that the lawyer of the family actually wrote to the family about his findings after doing a bunch of stuff. There's a couple of things. One, after that letter came out publicly, they like posted it online, the county coroner's office or something said like, we didn't not say that there were (laughs) autopsy photos. Like, we just haven't released them. So it's just like you release everything. And I I believe that the Horsford family is like, yeah, release that shit. They haven't seen it, you know, like at this point, they just kind of want justice if justice is due to them, you know, and I don't think they're necessarily pushing like this was definitely a murder. They're pushing for, hey, why don't you investigate a little more? Because the way that you're leaving it is very unsettling, you know, and so but basically the county coroner double negative being like we did not not say, you know, so potentially isn't that (laughs) so potentially there are autopsy photos or not or maybe not but But nana 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 i guess so that's weird but the most striking line from ralph e fernandez's letter that that kind of stuck with me is he says the truth never had a chance and that's the truth if you label a kid as a runaway if you rule a death as a suicide or accident and you don't give these people who are overwhelmingly marginalized in terms of race, occupation, like, you know, sex workers or shippers or something, yeah. people mm-hmm. that work in the sex industry, age, like little kids. Automatic sti- stigma. Yeah, socioeconomic yeah. status or anyone who falls on the LGBTQ spectrum. If you don't give these people, these cases a chance, not only will they be unsolved, but we're never going to hear about them because they're just quickly ruled on and then kind of thrown under the rug, swept under the rug. I think that's the way you say that. You can throw the rug under the bus. Let's just, yeah, let's throw rugs and buses and dust everywhere. So here's the deal. It's, it's, we're not necessarily getting on people's cases about like, why didn't you know about this? Why didn't you know about this? Cause they think that, I think the term is virtue signaling. Is that like when people, <laughs> Go online and they're like, why isn't anybody talking about this? Why isn't anybody talking about this? Oh, why? Why? You're a bad person if you haven't heard about this case or something. And here's the deal. What that does is it's very unproductive because it makes people feel guilty. It makes them want to shut down. The fact is, if these cases aren't properly investigated or funded, if you don't give any credence to those cases, no one's ever going to hear about it. So it's not people's fault necessarily, like the general public's fault that we're not hearing these cases. It's the police. It's law enforcement. It's the courts. It's people ready to jump to conclusions based on a preconceived notion about a person or group of people, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm just thinking about like how many cases there are and how overwhelmed police must be especially now and how no one wants to be a fucking cop right yeah now. because there's already cold cases but many of these cases are considered closed not cold you know so you have cold cases and now you have closed cases that people are demanding be opened back up because they fucked you know yeah there's a lot of pressure for departments to close cases, I assume. Exactly, right? Especially that's if that's how like sheriffs get reelected shit and shit, right. you know? Yeah. So I'm not going, I'm not, what I'm not saying, or what I. What I'm not not saying. <laughs> 
I'm not saying that they're all going to end up with a different outcome or result, but at least the truth has a chance. Well done. Thank you. (laughs) So this week, I want to highlight another case that has gone viral with people demanding it be opened back up, just like in the Tamla Horsford case. This one's a little bit newer. So Tamla Horsford was, I believe, November 2018. This occurred in August of 2019. This is the case of Elijah McLean, a 23-year-old massage therapist who spent his lunch breaks playing his violin to cats and dogs at a nearby shelter because it helped re- he believed it helped alleviate their anxiety. Wow, what a dick. Uh, yeah, what a thug. Piece of shit. Yeah. He was sweet and he marched to his own beat. He's like this very skinny, tall I've seen videos of him. He's like dancing around and just like. So would you say he's like the Pied Piper? (laughs) What? You said he was playing a flute? Violin. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No. Okay. Uh, You're not allowed to talk anymore. We'll see about that. Everyone loved him. One night in August 2019, I believe it was August 24th, Elijah went to buy his mother an iced tea at the convenience store, which that just kind of made me think of Trayvon Martin because, you know, like he looks suspicious with his Arizona iced tea and Skittles, right? And it just kind of like had this like residual energy of yeah, imminent, Trayvon Martin. Imminent Of a high. kid. I mean, Elijah was 23. Trayvon Martin was like, what, like 15? He was a kid. He was not an adult. And I'm not saying that Elijah is any more of a threat because he's a small dude, right? So he is walking back with his iced tea to bring to his mother And he was wearing, like, an open-faced ski mask. I'm imagining it's one of those with, like, the whole face cut out. Not, like, it looked like he was robbing a place, you know? Not a Jason Voorhees one? No. Well, no. Because that would be a hockey mask. Damn it. (laughs) It wasn't, like, a balaclava. Okay. Yeah. It was, like, an open-faced ski mask. So it wasn't full Antifa. No. This was in Aurora, Colorado. So even though it was the end of summer... It was also sort of the beginning of fall. So I, I bet there was a chill in the air and he did have anemia. So he got cold really easily. And so he had that on, which wasn't rare. And someone called into 911, which we need to fucking talk about. I mean, we already talked about it before. Don't call 911 all the time for minor things. Call like don't be. The- call 411 and find <laughs> out what the fuck. <laughs> or just leave it alone or if you feel i guess if you feel sassy enough you can maybe like ask like yes just street justice like you know the other day in my next door fucking i hate next door but actually this this area is not so bad because people are are kind of we we got nothing to talk about here somebody with the next door there's been a lot of like fireworks stuff because it's near the 4th of July but people were like hey did anybody hear that fireworks sound was that a gun blah 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 And somebody was like, it was my next door neighbor. I went over and I asked them to stop and they said they would. The end. Scandalous. Do you see see how you don't have to call 911? (laughs) Have you heard the stories about all the fireworks going on in New York City and stuff? And I think it's like a part of it's like, you know, remember in the Koresh thing that we watched on Netflix? Yeah. How the AATF was doing the mental... Uh, oh yeah yeah what's it called mind uh, like uh, mind fuckery basically yeah like you're playing to, like, like smoke them out with like annoyances yeah playing like just fucking like feedback and all the shit super high levels and stuff yeah you're trying to get their anxiety up 
so a lot of people think that all this all these fireworks like professional grade fireworks like expensive ones like just all night oh. in the big cities on the east coast they think they're they're trying uh, to like stress everyone out to the point of like and get them desensitized out, for like more like actual like violence yeah oh i hadn't heard that well thanks twitter all of that aside the moral of this story is you don't have to call 911 for everything I don't. We're going to, we have a really good friend who is a 911 operator. We're going to do an episode with her soon. Should we just call 911? <laughs> Hi, is Jamie there? <laughs> we just want to talk. The fact is, people call 911 for fucking insane things. 911 is the fucking police. You know what I mean? Like, there are non emergency numbers you can call. All you have to do, seriously, if you just put in like the city that you live in, like Ventura, and you put in like non-emergency number within 30 seconds, you're going to find out what the non-emergency number is that you can call. So if you hear a firework in your neighborhood and your dog shitting themselves, you don't need to fucking call the cops. OK, you can call the non-emergency number and report. Hey. And so once, you know, once more neighbors report it, or you can go on your fucking next door app and be like, hey, can other people call the non-emergency number to report this so we can, you know, it's, it's annoying, but it's something I can live with until tomorrow, you know, because it would really suck if, you know, a police officer came by and then shot the person who was letting off the fireworks, right? You Party know? foul. It seems like a little yeah. excessive. Yeah, you could just get on the neighborhood watch whatever chat room thing that you do. <laughs> That's and- next door. Yeah. Organize a little neighborhood militia and then no. just, uh, you know, they started talking about like go pulling our bring res- a hose. They started talking about pulling our resources and getting a security guard to stand guard on Norway, right? Drive right there. I got five on it. <laughs> that would be so we would have to pay the salary of a security guard. That That's at least like I would say $40,000 a year. What is there, like maybe a thousand people in this neighborhood? I bet that we could just get that Chris Barnes looking dude that we see around the neighborhood all the time. (laughs) (laughs) We could just get him like an eight ball of meth and then he'd be good for like six months. (laughs) And a couple more Cannibal Corp shirts. That would be awesome. Yeah, Yeah. because I've only seen him wear that one. (laughs) Well, I've got a few of those I could spare too. (laughs) All right, so all of that aside, someone called 911 on this dude, Elijah, walking, saying, like, he looks suspicious. So what do you do? Bring in the whole fucking force, I guess, because Aurora, Colorado, apparently there's nothing else to do than to tackle 23-year-old violin-playing very nice people. 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 (laughs) Officers confronted McLean, who was not armed and had not committed any kind of crime, he, quote unquote, resisted arrest, probably because he's like, why are you arresting me? What happened? I, blah, blah, blah. One officer claims Elijah had grabbed for another officer's gun, after which Elijah is wrestled to the ground. He can be heard struggling to breathe, telling the officers he is not resisting, that he is unarmed and that he has ID. He tells them his name, that his home is right there, that he's unarmed and that he doesn't eat meat and wouldn't hurt anyone. He's like, listen, I'm not going to hurt you. I don't even eat meat. I'm a vegetarian. Yeah. That's fucking He's just like throwing out anything he can just to not be hurt. And he says, I'm just different. I'm just different. He says this over and over and over again. And quite honestly, it's heartbreaking. 
While restrained, Elijah vomits and apologizes. I wasn't trying to do that. I can't breathe correctly. At one point, an officer threatens he will bring his dog out to bite Elijah. This is after Elijah is like profusely apologizing and being like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And like, this is my name and stuff. Police administer a carotid hold twice on Elijah, causing him to lose consciousness. When EMTs respond to the call, they administer a dose of the sedative ketamine. And our friend Jessica, who was over last night, she was saying that the amount of ketamine that they gave him was like an insane dose that you would never give out in the field. You would even hesitate to give that much. I think it was like 700 milligrams or something. You would hesitate to give that much in like a hospital setting. So she said it was just a very strange amount and it's used as a sedative. Was it a fuck up to give uh, that much? I well, that's what I was trying to ask her. She was kind of drunk. Um, so like because like the cops yes, a, and the EMTs are in on it. Well, either that or the police are basically asking. The, well, maybe they know like, oh, fuck, this guy is not going to be OK. And so maybe it's like their way of. Or do you think they just said they gave him? No, no, they did. Because they did a toxicology report, I believe. So there is a way to tell how much he was given. But I think it's a way to kind of cover up the extensive damage they had already done to this kid. And maybe they knew he was going to die. So maybe they could even make make it like a drug overdose, make it look like it was maybe the EMT's fault or something. I don't know. But then the EMT's could be liable, can't they? Well, yeah, totally. So didn't, okay, go on. I mean, it, that's it's was weird. It, so was there anything the deal. that came of it? Just like Fernandez said, the truth never had a chance here because they were so quick to fucking close it. He had a heart attack on the way to the hospital and died days later after he was declared brain dead. His last words and the body cam footage is available online. I have not. I can't. I can't watch it. After an internal investigation, the officers were found to be not at fault for his death. Case closed, except for now. So it's been reopened. It, this may be a case that we go more in depth with later on, but there isn't much more to say because everything's really up in the air right now. His petition in the last 24 hours has gained it's it's basically gaining like a million signatures every day. Wow. So if you like Tamla Horsford's, I think is up to like seven or 700 or 800,000. This dude's is the last time I checked, it was at 3.2 million. And reports that were made like last night were saying that it's got over two million. So I mean, I, it's growing at a very exponential rate. Like people are fucking up and like. When did this happen? This happened just ten months ago. Okay. And in the like three days, he's gotten three million signatures, or the petition has gotten three million signatures. So I will put a link on our Facebook page for you guys to also join in with the petition to demand that the officers that killed Elijah should stand trial, should be charged, should be convicted. They still have their jobs. In the case of Breonna Taylor, one officer has been fired, but no one has been arrested yet. And they're saying that, like, her name is, like, not on people. It's not, like, trending in Twitter feeds right now. Like, it's starting to get drowned out. And so... You know, we haven't really talked about Brianna Taylor in depth, but if you want to know a little bit more, I highly recommend the Cases of Color podcast. They cover, uh, she, Randy covers her 
a couple episodes back, but I wanted to put Elijah's story out there. I, I bet Cases of Color is going to be doing Elijah's story very soon. She tends to be very like got her finger on the pulse of like what's happening and like what's very relevant. And so it wouldn't surprise me if either she's already done him in the last week or two or is going to do him in the next week or so. So like I said, we're hopefully going to cover this in another episode when there is maybe like an update or more traction with what's happening. But undoubtedly, because of public pressure, just like we talked about last week with Tamla Horsford's case, what's happened with Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, the more public pressure you can put on a case, the more likely they are to either open it back up or at least, you know, start questioning arresting, charging, convicting the people that really did kill innocent people. So this week I wanted to do a case that I've been researching and thinking about on and off for a while rather than start a whole new one. And because it was our anniversary yesterday, yesterday, eight years married, woo! and it was one of our (laughs) very good friend Jessica's birthday on the 21st. Happy birthday, Jessica. HPD. Um, I wanted to make sure she had a good birthday, so I gave her pizza and cake and all kinds of and, things. Yeah. We just haven't had a lot of free time this week at all. It's been it's been nice, but rather than not put an episode out this week at all, we it's had a just pile like, of savage dogs that we were taking. Oh yeah, care of. we had six dogs this week too. Can't it's been get a lot. much done around the house. No, when the especially house is when being they're howling. destroyed by Yeah. A big dust cloud like in the old like Peanuts commercials or uh, cartoons, sorry. So it's a little bit of a lighter case, which is rare, but I really like some of the lighter cases because there's enough heavy shit out there. But I don't want to give away too, too much. Let's just get into the case of Natasha Ryan. I got most of my info from, and there's not a ton of info about her online, but I got most of my info from Roxanne McCarty-O'Kane from stayathomemum.com and an article from mamamia.com. It sounds like a lot of moms are interested in this case. And I know that a lot of the info also came from a Women's Day interview that was conducted. I'm not going to say by who um, yet. And then there was a 60 Minutes Australia episode that we watched to help prepare for this episode as well. And I would say that those are the top four things that you could find about this case at all. So buckle up, moms. <laughs> Natasha Ann Ryan was born in 1984. Huh, weird. Everybody's born in 1984. Everybody that we cover is like 36 years old. It's funny. Maybe I should be worried. Her father and mother separated when she was young, but she also had a sister and was a bridesmaid of her stepmother's, which is to say, you know, she was fairly close with family. In July of 1998, so when we were 14 years old, aided by her boyfriend, Scott Black, who was about eight years older than her, Natasha ran away from home. She was found just two days. my age? Huh? He was my age. Oh, yeah. Their their age spread is our age spread. But I I wouldn't want to date you when I... You would not have dated me when you were 22 years old and I was 14. I know, you were a total geek. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's just that, huh? She was found just after two days and Scott was fined $1,000 in November 1999 for willful obstruction of police. It's weird, I guess, if there's not a complaining party, I guess, you know? Like, no one's, like, crying, like, 
abduction or rape or anything like that. I guess it is just a fine. I mean, this is Australia. I don't know what the difference would be here in the United States if a 14-year-old girl went to go run away to her 22-year-old boyfriend's house for a few days. Like, I don't know if he would be fined or put in jail or what. There would be some stat shit going on for sure. We don't know if they were having a sexual encounter, but likely they were. Scott Black claimed he helped Natasha because she had threatened to kill herself. A police report highlighted in The Age showed Natasha was a troubled teen who had been suspended from school, experimented with a variety of drugs, and had slashed her wrists on one occasion and had been receiving counseling. So that's all to say that she was not totally atypical like she was a moody teenager that experimented with some things and cut herself. I don't even think it was like a suicide attempt. I think she was just a little bit of a cutter. We all go through our phases. Yeah, we do. However, the next month, Natasha disappeared on August 31st, 1998, which August 31st, you want to you want this is kind of a trip. It's the last day of winter in Australia. That's when the season changes. Well, yeah. I know. It's like the no, toilet water when... goes the opposite way when you flush it, too. <laughs> After her mother dropped her off at school. Later, she was reported as missing. An extensive and exhaustive search was undertaken for her and three other girls two years after her disappearance by police and local state emergency service volunteers as part of an ongoing investigation into a serial killer. Hopes of finding Natasha alive soon diminished, and police concluded. She probably had been murdered by Rockhampton serial killer Leonard Fraser. Fraser? Fraser? Fraser. I want to say Fraser, but it's F-R-A-S-E-R. And they had an Australian accent when they were saying it. So it's like Fraser. I don't know. That's not Australian, but we should Fraser. We should find out how Kelly says it. Fraser, who is later charged with Ryan's murder. A creepy detail about this guy. He kept his victim's ponytails as trophies. months later the girl's mother so months after her disappearance her mother whose name is Jenny Ryan told the media I don't believe Natasha would let me go through all this pain if she was out there which means she believed that she had been a victim of Leonard's Scott told authorities so Scott Black her boyfriend told authorities that he had no idea where his girlfriend was either as time passed, the backdrop of Natasha's disappearance, the three women that went missing, which was Beverly Lego, who was 36, Sylvia Benedetti, who was 19, and Julie Turner, who was 39, they had all gone recently missing from the, Nor- from the Rockhampton area where she was. And this all painted a very grim scene. So the boyfriend not knowing where she was, all these other women who were fairly young, you know, one was 19, going missing, you know, and she was 14 at the time, 15, 16, young teenager. All signs pointed that she had been murdered by this guy. So in May of 2001, on her birthday, 70 of her loved ones released balloons into the clear sky, mourning the girl who never got to grow up and police couldn't find. It was Natasha's 17th birthday, Almost three years had passed since that school morning, and her family was still stunned with grief. Life went on for her family, that is, until April 11th of 2003, when things took a baffling turn. Fraser was in court at the time, being tried for six murders, when police prosecutor Paul Rutledge stood to announce that Fraser was not guilty of the murder of Natasha Ryan, 
because, in fact, she was alive. Wah, wah, wah? Detectives had found her the night before healthy and well on a tip, an anonymous tip from most likely one of Scott's relatives and actually gave Scott address and phone number of like, if you go to this address or call this number, you'll find Natasha. That's what the anonymous tip said. And so acting on that tip, they went to the house, found her healthy and well, hiding in a cupboard at her boyfriend Scott Black's house. You know, the same boyfriend who insisted to the police on numerous occasions that he had not seen or heard from her in years. Yeah. So a lot of times this case is famously named like the girl who hid in the cupboards and it's portrayed as like she lived in a cupboard, but that's not true. She was just found in a cupboard when the police came because that's what she did. She would she would run and hide in the cupboard to keep from being found. Right. But she did stay in that house or yeah. apartment or whatever. Yeah. For... So Natasha's father reportedly almost collapsed when he heard his daughter was alive. So it's crazy to think the way that this article was being written is that they found out that she was alive at her murder trial. That's insane. Could you imagine? Yeah. You thinking I was dead for years and you're going to my trial to see, you know, my murderer be put away. And then they're like, drum roll, please. <laughs> Just kidding. She's alive. You'd be pretty pissed, I would assume. And like have a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. You and your new girlfriends. <laughs> oh. But I mean, just like someone that you love, who you believe has been missing this, you know, dead this whole time. You're at their murder trial and that's when you find out they're fucking alive. And then on top of that, to talk find out later on. Yeah. To talk about later on that they left of their own volition and that they weren't being held captive anywhere. And they never reached out to you. And they never reached out to you. Yeah. Totally like let you almost just unforgivable stew in your own misery thinking that they were dead. Yeah. And especially as a kid doing that. Well, on that 60 minutes interview, mm -hmm. the mom, um, she like didn't want to see her at first. Yeah. She kind of said that she's, she did. Yeah. She's like, kind of like, fuck you. Yeah. Because the interview is 60 minutes. You're supposed to be dead. <laughs> which she got $120,000 for. The interview with 60 minutes was like two weeks after she had been found. Like she had resurfaced. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of like one of the reasons I liked watching that interview is that all of the feelings that everybody was feeling was very fresh. You know, yeah. it wasn't like years later. Like in the um, J.C. Dugard. So J.C. Dugard, she, she, I think it was years after she had been. All oh, right. Because she had to go through years of therapy before she could even, like, really talk about it, yeah. I think. And so when Diane Sawyer did that interview, it was years after. So she had a lot of time to reflect and had a lot of therapy. And so she could talk about it really clearly. And she kind of had prescribed, pre-recorded answers for things, you know. Yeah. And I'm sure she had a publicist and stuff that coached Diane Sawyer on what she could and couldn't ask. But in this interview, the reason I liked it so much is that she was very honest and she didn't have time to think about things because if you want to make that money, which she did, she wanted the money, you have to do it like right after. And I believe that J.C. Dugard maybe was paid for her interview, but there's a really good chance she wasn't because at that point she had already written her book and stuff. She was like a New York Times bestseller. Natasha would live in the dark with the curtains drawn and the windows and doors locked tight so that she would remain out of sight. She later revealed that she sometimes would crouch on the floor of Scott's Holden Ute, 
You know what that is, right? That's a car. Yeah. In well, isn't it like a truck? It's like an El Camino looking. Yeah, it's yeah. Like a, it's like a, it's a Ute. That's what they are. It's a fucking Ute. Get over it. <laughs> you get to. You have to go to yeah. Australia to know. Yeah, can't. <laughs> That's what they say there. That's not offensive. For the three-minute drive to Farnborough Beach, which they would go for a midnight swim. And she had ventured outside the house a number of times under the cover of darkness. And in the interview, she said, we watched thunderstorms and like play on the beach. And like it was very romantic. She was not being held captive. Like this girl was definitely there because she wanted to be. She just had to hide those teeth. (laughs) They're pretty bad. Despite becoming known as, quote unquote, the girl in the cupboard, Natasha said she only used the cupboard to hide in if visitors came to the house to visit Scott. And she said she never was in there for more than like an hour at a time. You know how far away from her mother she was? It was like two and a half miles. It was like a five-minute car ride. Four years? Yeah, like four years and like eight months. Like closer to five years. Like a quarter of her life. That's pretty fucked up. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. Young lady. He was protecting me and I caused him to do it. It was my fault that he did it, Natasha told New Idea in 2007. It was my decision to run away. He was doing something really, really lovely and protecting me. And I felt like I should have been or deserved to be punished. And that is one thing, again, like in the interview, she's like, yeah, I deserve to be punished, but I don't want to be. And that's what the mom says, too. She's like, yeah, my daughter probably should go to jail, but it would be better if she did it. Like they want to like admit fault, yeah. but they don't want any of the repercussions. Well, yeah, it sounds like she rules the house with an iron fist over at that, yeah. at that place there. As for the reasons behind her letting her family believe that she was dead for five years, she explained, I am never going to fully publicly say why I left. I know why I left. I'm not sure my mom and my sister completely know all the reasons. I'm not sure it would make any difference saying why I left. I feel whatever I say wouldn't be good enough for the pain that I've caused my family. I think that her reasons were, one... She had a boyfriend who was way older than her and it was socially and legally unacceptable. Two, I don't think she likes school. I mean, at that point, she was a freshman in high school. And three, I don't think she liked following rules. And, well. she, and she wanted to be with her like older boyfriend all the time. I think that I'm not saying that they're good reasons, but I'm saying that like in hindsight. I'm with you on like, two think or three. About, think about when you're 14 years old. Have you? Did you ever get mad at your dad for not letting you do something? <laughs> um... Like a lot? Yeah. And I was or like high if, on acid at the same time. So would it did you ever try to run away from home? No. I'm smarter than that. <laughs> but I mean, like, did the thought ever cross your mind of like, man, I could just raise myself? Um, I also knew that I could not. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely had the thought of like, man, fuck these people. I could do a better job raising myself, you know? The actual action of, like, leaving your home and trying to do that. Now, obviously, she had a co-conspirator who could, like, help her out and stuff. Who owned, like, he didn't own a house, but he rented a really nice house in the area with, like, killer views of the beach and stuff. And he was just a milkman. I don't know how he was able to live in, like, a decent-sized house on the beach, I guess. Australians drink a lot of milk. (laughs) But, I mean, it'd be one thing to run away from home. But to stay gone, like that takes some fucking real pig headed 
laziness. Stubborn, yeah, laziness. I mean, she worked out and she taught herself German online, I guess. Mm-hmm. But well, she looked like she was fluent in German. <laughs> what does that mean? It means she didn't know how to speak German. Okay. She didn't study too hard, I don't think. Okay. So it is estimated that the search cost taxpayers an estimated $160,000 to $400,000. The estimates really varied because there was also like the discussion of, hey, you're on the higher end of the $400,000 for the search. That's They said that most of those searches were for all of the women that were missing, not just her. Part of a serial killer. Yeah. yeah. And so they're like, you're trying to compound all of the other investigative stuff into her bill, basically. And it was on, a lot of people claim it was on the lower end, like 160000 But regardless... It's that's a still, fuck, that's a lot of taxpayer dollars, you know, yeah. going into something where she could have easily just poked her head up and been like, I'm here. Sorry. It you could know. have gone straight into some politician's pocket. For causing a false investigation, Natasha was fined $1,000, while Scott Black was convicted of perjury after telling investigating police officers that he didn't know her whereabouts and was handed a three-year jail sentence, of which he served 12 months. He was also forced to pay $16,000 towards the cost of the investigation. He's got to sell a lot of milk. Yeah, well, I'm sure he sold a lot of milk in jail. (laughs) (laughs) She had been missing for four years and eight months. So that Leonard dude, the one that was the serial killer, he was found guilty of the murders of Beverly Lego, Sylvia Benedetti, and... Guilty of the manslaughter of Julie Turner. He was 51 years old when he was sentenced to three indefinite prison terms. Indefinite? Oh, indefinite meaning forever. On June 13th, 2003, but he died from a heart attack in jail on January 1st, 2007. There were calls for the couple to pay some of the hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on the search back to the taxpayers and court costs for a false murder charge against Leonard. Fair enough. Yeah, like... Right? Yeah. So here's the deal, too, is that there's evidence that she was paid $120,000, like, within two weeks of, you know, resurfacing, I guess. or you know, Like, she wasn't found, really. She just oh, resurfaced. Oh, from uh, 60 Minutes? Yeah. That, I mean, I don't know what her family's financial situation was at that point, but she should have just, like, endorsed <laughs> well. that check to the people of Rockhampton. Because that yeah, would almost cover but- the bill. The big finale scene on 60 Minutes, I'm sure all you guys wanted to go check that out immediately, <laughs> but they're like eating their big reunion dinner on it. Look looked like oh, yeah. paper plates and stuff. So I think the money could have helped well, them a lot. Some people just eat off of paper plates because they don't like doing dishes, but... Yeah, I'm sitting I mean, next they to one right ro- now. They weren't... Ro- <laughs> That's not true. I just don't like doing dishes. So I just leave them in the sink for you to do regardless i don't know i i would have a really difficult time even at age 18 of ripping people off for that much money i don't think that she or he even thought about that part of it that's crazy they're just like yeah let's do us let's just never go outside that's weird get translucent yeah she was very translucent the only thing that got tanned were her teeth (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Good one. I guess that's yeah. what happens when you're at the beach at night. It's the only thing that gets tan. 
there's a happy ending ish to the story. Uh, and it's our last real piece of information that kind of pertains to the story is in 2008. You know what happened in 2008? Her teeth fell out. <laughs> no, they got married. Oh. They got married on September 29th, 2008, right after Scott finished serving his 12 month sentence of perjury. You know what that feels like? This part of the story. It feels like Mary Kay Letourneau, where it's like, oh, well, you guys all hate me. Well, guess what? I'm going to marry my victim. So then you're not allowed to hate me anymore. Oh, you hate me because I pretended to be abducted and killed for five years and probably ruined a lot of people's lives like my parents and stuff. Well, guess what? I'm going to marry the guy that I ran away for when I was 14 and now I'm 24. Now he's your son. Yeah. I'm, I hope I really L, like peer. I I really hope that they are happy, and I really hope that the families have come to terms with being totally duped for five years. You know, both families, because he had to keep it a secret from everyone too. I bet the holidays are interesting. <laughs> yeah, they're like, hey, remember that once. <laughs> so, and then also similar to Mary Kay Letourneau, she basically kind of sold the rights of like some wedding photos and stuff to that Women's Day magazine for $200,000, which again, at that point, I could see her needing it because of the wedding and starting her own family. But again, like it just feels like she should give back to the city a bit. Like, hey, sorry, (laughs) here's some money. That's not really how humans work. Yeah, that's how I work. But see, I would never do anything fucked up in the first place. So oh, by, we should do something. By, <laughs> by this time, Natasha was 24 and Scott was 31. Hey, you have that scratcher. You haven't scratched yet. I know. I'm waiting for um, it to appreciate in volume. Yeah. It doesn't I think work scratchers like are going to be the new currency when the dollar <laughs> collapses. The couple married in Byfield's Ferns Hideaway in front of 35 guests that were heavily... Armed? No. (laughs) (laughs) Security made sure that they were the people that were invited to the wedding. And everybody was told no pictures whatsoever. I think not because they were trying to be private, but it was because, like, if you take any pictures, it'll it'll fuck up our contract with Women's Day. Oh, because they they had the exclusive photo rights. They had the exclusive photo rights to it, I believe. Especially for a quarter million dollars, you'd think so. Because, like... After this, she there's nothing else about this woman at all. And so it's just like, this is your last moment to be relevant. It's yeah. exactly like the Mary Kay Letourneau thing. I don't think she's... No one's going to be offering her more than like 50 bucks for an interview at this point. What's she going to talk about her Tinder fucking dating, you know? Like selling her exclusive rights to her wedding interview and photos and shit for three quarters of a million dollars. That's a fucking smart move. Because that is the last second you're going to be relevant. True. Yeah. I'll give it to these two pieces of shit. I mean, she's not a total garbage person, Natasha Ryan, but I'll give it to her. She so she I she kid- cashed in on her only opportunity. So if I kidnap you for four years. Which you have. <laughs> we can make a triumphant comeback and then get a bunch of money for photos. How about we just like have jobs? No. And like earn our own. <laughs> no. We've been doing that for a while. It's fine. I'd rather not work. <laughs> well, then you've got to become a cam girl. Fans only. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> I mean, if that's what the people want to see. 
Then give them what they want. Uh, who am I to not give, you know. Okay, the last piece of information I have is 2011. The couple at this point in 2011 had three children. Yay. And Natasha was studying to be a nurse. So, thoughts? No, that's cool. I mean, I hope they're still together and they're happy. You know, yeah. it's just, it's kind of like the episode we did a couple ones ago. Mary Kay Letourneau? Yeah. It like, kind of just feels like you're marrying your... Now, technically speaking, Scott and Mary Kay Letourneau, Scott Black, this guy, they both were sexually assaulting, I guess, to some degree. One was statute. They were both statutory rape. But in the in the case of Mary Kay Letourneau, it was even worse because she it was also the power play of being his teacher and significantly older. And he was significantly younger. He was 12. So I guess yeah. it was it wasn't that. Much. I don't know. Like, I think these two cases. Are they related in your mind? Well, you know, in my it's flipped. Like, it's flipped. It's the young girl and the older guy. Well, that part doesn't really matter to me. Like. I'm just saying, in the world that we live in, this is such a light shade of gray. Like, what is? Like, these two things. These people, like, genuinely liked each other and, you know, consensually were in these relationships. But you can't be, you can't consensually be in a sexual relationship if you're a minor. In, so, in legally speaking. Uh, fucking legally speaking, yeah. Hey, this is a true crime uh, show. <laughs> yeah, but let's talk about real world shit. You know, well, some people grow up faster you could than also, others. You could, you could also make the fucking Mentally. claim that fucking Billy Falao and Mary Kay Letourneau were really soulmates. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm no. That's how I'm comparing these. No. Two. That was sexual abuse of a child. He stayed with her. Because he was scared of her. Do you remember the milk bottles? <laughs> she was threatening him and shit. She's a fucking psycho. She's a psycho bitch. I don't There's know no anything arguing about. That. I don't know anything about Scott Black at all. He was definitely in the wrong, and luckily, him and Mary Kay Letourneau both served time. I think that probably adequate about amounts of time. Mary Kay Letourneau did like seven and a half years. This dude did like three years and was released after one. Yeah. Well. And at the point, yeah, and I don't know. It's it's weird. I'm saying. On the scale from black to white, this is pretty light gray as far as what goes on in this world. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it right. But on the spectrum, yeah, it's on but, the less terrible side. Yeah. It's, it's not that wrong. It's, it's not that right it, It's either. fucked up. Yeah, it's fucked to up. Do, it's fucked up to do to if, your family. If she gets vilified in this piece way more than he does. Like, he's never talked about really as being like much of like a sexual deviant or anything like that. It's her fucking making her family go through hell. Yeah, that's... Because that's, she she was complicit in her... Right, that's the only fucking that, fucked up part about the whole story. No, it's it's also fucked up that he's 22. And, and that they searched for her thinking that she was killed. Yeah. I guess that's kind of Man, because she was... I mean, they were watching TV during that time. So she knows. Oh, they're searching for me. Ha, ha, ha. I don't know. Maybe she did laugh. I did some, I laughed at some fucked up stuff when I was like 15, 16 years old. I laugh at fucked up stuff five minutes ago <laughs> that I said. <laughs> so who cares? 
it, it just sucks because cases like this set a weird precedent or potentially could set a weird precedent where it's like, oh, it's just, you know, like a 22 year old <laughs> dude or lady, you know, being in a sexual relationship with a kid being like, but it was fine with Scott Black and, you know, Natasha Ryan. It was fine with Billy Falau and, and Mary Kee Letourneau. It's like age doesn't, you know, love doesn't know. Love ain't nothing. Age ain't <laughs> <laughs> something about love and age and numbers <laughs> yeah yeah some fucking astrology shit age ain't nothing but a number that's right that's a that's problematic that's what i'm saying these cases where the abusers and the abused or the victims and the people that are old enough to be their accused you know whatever it blurs the line of consent. It blurs the line of the law. It blurs the lines of love, age, all kinds of things. So that when a child abuse case later on comes up, they could be like, no, this is just like the case of Natasha Ryan. And, you know, she, th this, this little girl was there consensually. She wanted to be there. You know, it's like that. Yeah, it, that's yeah. what I'm saying is that it can set a really dangerous uh, precedent. I agree with that. Yeah. So even though but it's not the worst also... case ever. It's it's still gross. We are also swan diving back to the Stone Age. <laughs> so I, swan dive is a little too graceful of a verb to give it. Uh, belly flopping yeah. <laughs> <laughs> into the Stone Age, yeah. where we're all going to be living in caves, huddled by a fire, trying to stab hairy elephants for food. I want a hairy elephant. You all have right. five or four. <laughs> I guess you I guess I keep I qualify too. You can join our Facebook group, True Crime Dumpster, to talk about recent true crimey stuff and get additional info about our shows and talk about some shit. This week, the topic of conversation has been Jeremy Christian, who was the Max Stabber. He was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole, and said some crazy shit and had. A very strange, unexplainable haircut. Did you see that? I did not. You do not participate in the Facebook group, sir. I have a job. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> and our listeners do too, sir. Okay. You can listen to, so don't get all fucking. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter, TC Dumpster, and on Instagram, True Crime Dumpster. You can email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com. I would love some listener suggestions at this point. I I mean, I definitely have many more in the works, yeah. but I'm becoming much more flexible with doing things that are a little more relevant or like a little more like, like I don't want to have like months planned out at a time. I want to be able to ebb and flow as, you know, what She's with... got her some openings in her schedule. But I don't want to do ones that are heavily done purely for like a gawky element, you know? Like I don't want to do BTK even though it's super duper interesting cuz like everybody has fucking done it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only thing that's come up with him recently is that there was like a petition to like let him go because of COVID-19. But dude has killed over 50 people. I don't think... Oh wait, no, that not that's, that's Gary Ridgeway. Whoops, sorry. But BTK killed enough people that we should probably not let him out. But Gary yeah. Ridgeway, I think he was on that... Like, there were people saying... I think that... I don't know. See, I, I'm not going to be able to quote any, like, good research here or anything. Because I just saw it as a headline somewhere that, like, 
Gary Ridgway almost accidentally got out. They like it was like a three to two vote on like letting him out because of COVID-19. I don't know if that's true, but like had one more person <laughs> voted to let him out. Gary Ridgway, would, he would be at a slumber party at our house right now. That's scary. <laughs> We're having a slumber party. <laughs> Sweet. I'm just saying he, we could if he had gotten out. It, it'd be funny, too, because everyone's don't. got their COVID masks on. You'd never know. I'm not saying I want to have a slumber party with Gary Ridgway. He would just find his way here. Do you think he's good at pillow fighting? I think he's good at all kinds of fighting. I don't want to find out. <laughs> okay. You can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, literally any podcast platform you could find. Lastly, rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about our podcast. We have not had a single review yet. Bro? Yeah, we're that sick. <laughs> well, I mean, we have decent ratings, but we need some reviews, guys. Come on, if you enjoy the show, just say you like it. Hey, good job. These guys are cool. If you don't, you can fuck off and die. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so, tune in next time where we talk out the trash and continue on with our next story. Take care and be safe. Yeah. See you next time. Bye-bye.